This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we hear about connections between hearing loss and cognition from presenters at the upcoming research symposium on hearing, a part of the 2021 Asha Convention. Esther O. from the Johns Hopkins Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health makes plain how hearing loss can compound neuropsychiatric symptoms like agitation and depression. But first, psychiatrist and researcher Brett Rutherford has called age-related hearing loss the largest potentially modifiable factor for cognitive decline in older adults. About 40% of dementia cases we believe result from so-called modifiable risk factors, things like diet and physical activity levels and, prominently, hearing. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for this podcast comes from ASHA's National Outcomes Measurement System for Audiology. NOMS for Audiology is a powerful data collection tool that allows you to track your organization's clinical performance. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org NOMS. Our first guest says depression is one of the main drivers of disability in older adults, and he links the neuropsychiatric condition to cognitive decline and dementia. What role might hearing health play in preventative care? Joining me now is Brett Rutherford, a psychiatrist and researcher at Columbia University in the New York State Psychiatric Institute, where he is co-director of the research area on brain aging and mental health. Brett studies the relationship between depression, aging, and cognitive decline, including the role hearing loss can play in depression. Brett wrote about age-related hearing loss, late-life depression, and cognitive decline in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and he will be presenting on age-related hearing loss in older adults with mood disorders as a part of the Research Symposium on Hearing at the 2021 ASHA Convention. In August, I welcomed him to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to ask you questions about the role audiologists can play in the lives of those with depression. To begin, I'm hoping you can provide some context for us. How prevalent is depression among older adults? Depression is quite common among adults age 60 and older. Uh, If you survey older adults living in the community, about a quarter, 25%, will have increased depressive symptoms on survey instruments. And if you go into specialized settings like uh, skilled nursing facilities, that rate of having significant depressive symptoms can go up to 50% or more. So along with vascular disease in the brain and cognitive impairment, depression is one of the main entities we deal with when we treat older adults for neuropsychiatric problems. But you're a psychiatrist. What brought your attention to hearing loss? Well, it was really a serendipitous uh, meeting with some of my otolaryngology colleagues here at Columbia where I learned more about links between hearing loss and cognitive decline. Depression is also a risk factor for cognitive decline as folks age. So I began to wonder if depression might be an intermediate step on the road from hearing loss to cognitive decline. I'm always on the lookout and interested in age-related processes that may be linked to important neuropsychiatric outcomes because my research tries to understand the special circumstances of aging and how age-related processes might put us you know, at greater risk for certain kinds of problems as we get older. And then you know, by understanding those processes, we might get a leg up on, on trying to treat older adults with depression or cognitive decline. 
I think it's common. Many people often think of depression as something that takes place between the ears and not in them. Where do you see the connection between hearing loss and depression? That's a great question and an active area of research. You know, we don't really, what we have now is uh, powerful epidemiologic data. So meaning, you know, when we do, we look at survey data from people we know, people with hearing loss are much more likely to be depressed. And also if we follow people with hearing loss over time, we know that such individuals are more likely to get depressed. That association, though, between age-related hearing loss and uh, getting depressed doesn't tell us about the mechanisms. You know, how exactly is it that peripheral hearing loss might make a person depressed? There are many possibilities that we're actively investigating. And some of these are, so, you know, one, there are brain potential explanations. When a person has hearing loss that isn't treated, the auditory input to the brain, specifically the, the temporal uh, areas of the temporal lobes, is diminished. And when we decrease input to certain areas of the brain, the brain tends to shrink. And then, of course, everything connected to those brain regions tends to shrink as well. So we think one potential pathway leading from hearing to depression is kind of unhealthy, what we call neuroplastic changes. So changes in the uh, nature and connections of different brain regions uh, that eventually impacts areas of the brain important for cognition and depression, like emotion processing. Another possibility is that when people have difficulty hearing and they're expending a lot of cognitive effort and energy trying to decode speech, such as in the presence of a lot of background noise, that soaks up a lot of cognitive resources and can result in uh, something we call executive dysfunction, which is trouble in kind of planning and organization. It slows down our thinking. That kind of cognitive problem is very linked to depression both in terms of uh, its generation and perpetuation. We believe that through interconnections between hearing areas of the brain and areas responsible for cognition and also areas responsible for emotion processing, there may very well be direct brain pathways linking hearing loss to depression. Of course, there's also, you know, our behavior. And so when uh, we're unable to uh, hear and really participate as much as we might like in, in social environments and in discussions with others, we might have a tendency to withdraw from those settings. And indeed, there are data showing that in older adults with hearing loss, um, you know, are not as active and are not as socially engaged. And these things are very linked to depression as well. So still an unfolding area of research, but there appear to be both kind of social and behavioral pathways leading from hearing loss to depression, as well as direct pathways in the brain. Okay, so I'm detecting that there's still more to be learned about causation, correlation, and where these connections exist. But you've called age-related hearing loss the largest potentially modifiable factor for cognitive decline in older adults. That's a big claim, and I'm just wondering, in what ways do you think this could be addressed? Yes, it is a big, potentially, uh, I guess, scary claim in some ways, but also a, a reassuring and hopeful claim because there's a lot about preventing cognitive decline and development of dementia that, that we don't have good ways of doing things about. We don't have yet disease-modifying treatments that would be able to prevent or reverse or, or cure dementia once it sets in in terms of like Alzheimer's disease neuropathology or Lewy body pathology or the specific types of neurodegeneration we see in, in some dementia. 
But about 40% of dementia cases, we believe, result from so-called modifiable risk factors, things like diet and physical activity levels, and prominently hearing. Really based on the work of investigators such as Frank Lynn at Johns Hopkins and his group, a recent Lancet Commission report identified these so-called uh, modifiable risk factors. And, and hearing loss was responsible in their estimation for about 9% of all incident dementia cases, which is a you know huge amount of public health burden that could potentially be prevented or you know, ameliorated by effective hearing rehabilitative interventions. So uh, addressing our hearing loss is a very important and critical issue for protecting brain health moving forward, starting, you know, in midlife and, and, and moving forward from there. Although we're always looking for great fancy pills and whatnot, if we were to really exhaustively go after cardiovascular risk factors and diet and physical activity and hearing and depression, risk factors that we know how to manage and we have methods to manage, we could make a big dent in the amount of cognitive decline and dementia we see nationwide. If there's an audiologist listening to this, what should they be thinking about for the future? Depression tends to manifest differently in older adults compared to younger adults. It's less in terms of sad blue mood and tearfulness and much more in terms of apathy energy loss, bodily symptoms like pain and low appetite and sleeping trouble. So it can be missed. And I think given the connections we've been discussing between hearing loss and onset of depression, audiologists, you know, may be in a kind of good position to screen and bring to attention older adults who may be suffering from depression, but may not see themselves as depressed and certainly may not be seeing psychiatrists. The audiologic context is another healthcare setting where some screening could be done and potential referral for treatment and, and try to diminish the very large public health burden attributable to depression in older adults. From the other side, do you think there could be referrals coming to audiologists from those providing psychiatric services? Most definitely. I mean, that is something I really emphasize in my work. You know, in the bad old days, it used to be thought that depression is depression, whether you're 25 or 75. You know, it's kind of the same thing. You treat it with antidepressants and, you know, the evaluation is similar. As we've appreciated a number of age-related processes, whether it be cerebrovascular aging, whether it be physical mobility and movement, whether it be changes in the levels of important neurotransmitters with age. We've appreciated all these ways that depression in an older adult is different than depression in a younger adult and requires a more comprehensive evaluation. So it's become the purview of psychiatrists seeing depressed older adults, not just to ask questions about mood and energy and sleep, but to do a hearing screen. Something like the uh, HHIE could be checking out how fast somebody walks, which is a very important health indicator and one of the cardinal signs of frailty. It can be checking lower extremity muscle strength and, and vision and monitoring for sleep apnea. All of these age-related conditions that have powerful impact that we know are related to depression, related to cognition. As psychiatrists, seeing older adults, we need to be screening for these things and aware of them so that we can bring to bear you know, the treatments that are specifically going to help the person in front of us get better. And, you know, an antidepressant alone might not help someone's frailty or their hearing, certainly, or this. So 
we need to endeavor to treat whatever age-related pathologies are contributing to their low mood. Brett Rutherford, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brett says one question he has for the future is how much mood and cognition might recover with hearing loss treatment, or if the benefits exist more in preventative care. And he says it remains to be seen whether hearing care alone can restore good neuropsychiatric functioning or if it needs to be paired with other treatments. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, Esther O joins us to discuss hearing loss and dementia. Support for Asha Voices comes from NOMS for Audiology, a new data registry. Use NOMS to track your data against national averages to identify clinical improvement opportunities, successfully negotiate reimbursement with payers, and demonstrate the value of your audiological services. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org slash NOMS. Joining me now from Johns Hopkins is Esther O. She's co-director of Johns Hopkins Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center and associate professor of medicine. She's a faculty member at the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health. Her research looks at aging and memory conditions, and you can hear her speak on assessing hearing loss to improve healthcare outcomes at the Research Symposium on Hearing at the 2021 ASHA Convention. Esther O., welcome to ASHA Voices. Thank you very much. As I just mentioned, most of your research focuses on memory disorders like dementia. Why did you begin to incorporate communication and hearing loss into your research? One of the big reasons was because I think after having being attending or faculty member at the uh, memory care clinic, I think I was very frustrated with whenever my patients or you know caregivers asked me about you know, what was on the horizon? Was there a cure, you know, in next one or two years, new treatments and, and not being really able to offer that was new. And basically really exploring the hearing space was something that I felt was something that I could provide immediately to my patients. And uh, one of the things that happened was that I was attending Grand Rounds at uh, Johns Hopkins and Division of Geriatric Medicine. And I met somebody from the Cochlear Center, uh, Dr. Franklin, and he was talking about the association of um, aging, cognitive impairment, and hearing loss. And that really, I think, set off a light bulb in my head and thought, well, this is something that I might want to explore. So I met with him and we quickly came up with a couple of projects. And that was, I would say, uh, maybe six or seven years ago. And we've been on this pathway uh, for a long time. You published an article with him in 2017 for Seminars in Hearing. You co-published it with an audiologist as well. It's entitled Enhancing Communication in Adults with Dementia and Age-Related Hearing Loss. And the article reads, quote, untreated hearing loss can exacerbate common dementia-related behavioral symptoms such as depression, apathy, agitation. Could you talk a little bit about these neuropsychiatric symptoms that are related to dementia and and the and how hearing loss plays into those. Sure. So I think when many of us think about dementia, we always think of memory loss or something that's obviously cognitively related. But one important thing that I want to emphasize is that within the dementia syndrome, there's other domains. So what I mean by that, of course, there's the cognitive impairment. But a big part of dementia syndrome is what we call neuropsychiatric symptoms. And sometimes they're also referred to as behavioral symptoms of dementia. And that may include depression, apathy, anxiety, aggression, irritability, and, and many other symptoms. 
And I would say as a um, consultant, a specialist in this area, one of the really biggest reasons why I get referrals from community physicians, including neurologists, psychiatrists in the community, is neuropsychiatric symptoms that are very, very, very difficult to handle. And what results from that is one, often patients are not able to be taken care of at home anymore because the family members find it very difficult to continue to care for them. Uh, sometimes they're, they're taken to the hospital uh, because uncontrollable symptoms. Um, it's associated with a lot of costs, both in terms of caregiver burden and really in uh, U.S. economic dollars because of hospitalization and long-term care placement and so on. One of the things that I realized was that there's a miscommunication between the patient and the caregivers. So there's underlying cognitive impairment, but when you add hearing loss on top of that, what happens is that at a very simple level, the patient may not have heard what the caregiver said. So for example, they might ask, you know, what is today? And they might have been told it's Monday or Tuesday, but they never really heard it. And when you don't hear it, it's never put into the brain. We call that encoding. So later, they can't pull it out. So they might ask the caregiver the same question again and again and again. And that sometimes escalates to uh, frustration on the part of both patient and the caregiver. So, so there's definitely underlying cognitive impairment, but the hearing or hearing loss can compound the problem and actually the patient never heard in the place and they can't really recall things they didn't hear before. I imagine that some of these symptoms, things like depression or agitation, these are some of the things that could be particularly emotionally difficult uh, for family members. You told me a story about one patient uh, who seemed to have difficulties at parties. Would you mind sharing that story? I had a patient who was accompanied by one of her family members and one of the interesting things that came out, this really came out during the initial visit, was that the patient would really not like to be around other people. And it would be even instances where there was a birthday party thrown for the patient, and initially the patient refused to go, and when the patient did go, was not very happy um, at the birthday party that was thrown for the patient. We were treating for depression, anxiety, irritability, agitation. There were many other things that were occurring at home as well with medication. And I want to say maybe about a year or a year and a half. And I could immediately tell that her demeanor was very different. She looked very happy. Uh, I suppose to before she was kind of, you know, very uh, reticent, withdrawn, and not really talking very much. She was very engaged. And so we were doing something called, I believe, Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA. And I saw that her score had dramatically improved from a previous visit. When somebody has underlying neurodegenerative condition, so a brain disease that, you know, um, that declines over time, rarely do I see a jump or improvement in cognitive scores. And since I really hadn't done much else in terms of adjusting her medications, you know, this whole change in demeanor uh, was also kind of puzzling to me. And so I asked the family member who accompanies this patient, you know, every visit, did something change over time or different things happen, you know, since the last visit, which was about six months ago. And the family member said, yes, 
she actually got fitted with hearing aids and she could hear much better. So I think the jump in her cognitive score was partly probably attributable for, for the fact that she was able to hear the instructions for the cognitive testing. And so she might have been, you know, doing better as a result. And also in terms of her change in demeanor, what the family member said was that she was so much happier to be around other people. And one of the reasons apparently this person was unhappy about even this person's birthday party was because this person felt that, you know, she was not really the center of attention and people were just talking around her and about her, but really didn't understand that it was just a regular conversation. So now that she had hearing aids and could listen, uh, hear it and engage in conversation back and forth with her other family members and friends, she was so much happier, which goes to show you that perhaps Maybe she didn't even need that antidepressant. I, I don't know. But this non-pharmacological, you know, way of addressing hearing could both benefit her in terms of her cognitive function, which is what we do care about in dementia syndromes, as well as the behavioral symptoms that accompanied her dementia. You've mentioned there's seems to be an opportunity to address a patient's hearing loss, could help with cognitive function, and you just alluded to, it sounds like it could potentially also help with medication reduction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, my goal is that I'm an internal medicine physician with subspecialty training in geriatrics. I'm a geriatrician. And one of the things that I really try to pay attention is that it's not that we never need uh, pharmacotherapy or pill or medication. I think it's, you know, it has its place and it's very helpful. But one is to address a lot of the, the symptoms that older adults have by using non-pharmacological methods because we want to avoid and reduce side effects that come from medications. And so we do the non-pharmacological management of behaviors or cognitive dysfunction or those things, and then we optimize it. And I think sometimes we do need additional pharmacotherapy. That's when we can add it. But I really believe that first-line therapy or interventions for these types of problems that we we face when we're working with older adults is non-pharmacological therapy. And, you know, that includes obviously, you know, addressing hearing loss. In that 2017 article I mentioned a second ago, at the end, the article says, quote, there are opportunities in this population to provide basic, simple strategies and make substantial improvements as long as we adopt approaches that bring the services to the people instead of bringing the people to us in the audiology clinic, end quote. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that? How can the system of delivery be set up to be more effective or most effective? Sure. Obviously, I'm not an audiologist, but traditionally the way we've worked with audiologists is that we might do very rudimentary screening, maybe, or the caregiver, the patient brings up that they have hearing problems. We would write orders and they would go to and see an audiologist and you know, audiologists might say, you know, you might have like asymmetric hearing loss, so you have to go see an otolaryngologist, an otologist, and so so back and forth. So by the time I think the, the patient gets the necessary hearing aids or communication education they so badly need, it's taken them, you know, several months. As you know, our medical system is very na- difficult to navigate through and a lot of uh, costs as well. And this is a really, really problematic for patients who are older, especially older patients who have cognitive impairment. 
And because it always involves a caregiver who needs to take time off from work if they're working and also help the patient navigate through the process. And so really what ends up happening is that if I wrote a referral to an audiologist, there's very good chance that they would just really never make it there. And so one of the things that, you know, we had been kind of trying to brainstorm is one, really, can we do some more effective, you know, hearing screening in our own clinic? Obviously, we're a memory clinic, we're a subspecialty clinic, but also in the primary care. And but also audiologists to be an integral part of care system or care team. Plenty of times I've seen clinics where there's a physician, nursing staff, uh, maybe a technician. And sometimes, you know, some clinics have case managers, social workers on site. But I don't really encounter audiologists in outpatient system or also in the hospital inpatient system as well. We know the effects of COVID-19 on older populations have been and continue to be devastating. And as an effect, the pandemic led to isolation. I'm thinking of people in long-term care facilities that face lockdowns or restricted guest access. I asked Esther if she could talk about that isolation and the effect it can have on people and whether hearing loss is a part of this conversation as well. You know, I think obviously isolation during the times of COVID pandemic has been a problem for older adults, but obviously it's not just older adults. I think a lot of us of, you know, all age groups, you know, have experienced to a certain extent. But imagine, you know, you are an older adult, you're hospitalized, uh, you came from a nursing home or even from home. And, and what happens is when healthcare personnel visit the patient, so it could be doctor, nurse or whoever, um, we have to wear uh, protective gear. So it could range from N95, so basically a mask. I like to wear something called PAPR, which makes me look like, you know, like an astronaut. But bottom line is that there's a, a lot, really loud noise uh, because the air needs to be purified. So there's background noise that we, you know, we are all aware that's going to hamper, you know, communication. And then we come in with masks, which mumbles our speech. But also, a lot of us rely on lip reading, so visual cues of what people are saying to really comprehend. So at so many levels, COVID has really, I think, hindered and worsened the communication. And obviously, we don't go into our patients' rooms as frequently as perhaps, you know, as we used to before, because each time we go in, uh, there's an elaborate process of, you know, decontamination. So that also makes it very difficult to, you know, go in multiple times during the day. So there's might be less personal contact. We have great limitations on visitors. You know, that's really detrimental to to everyone in terms of mental health, but also for, I would say, especially for older adults. I had a gentleman, I think, I think he was over nine years of age and came out from intensive care unit after surviving, you know, COVID infection. He was still obviously in, you know, isolated room. You know, when I first met him, he had pretty much all the tubes you can think of, you know, <laughs> he had a nasogastric tube for feeding, he had IVs, just, really uh, just whatever to, you know, sustain his life. 
But I think what he really suffered most from was not being able to communicate with his wife. He was over 90, and I think they had been married close to 70 years. And he was also very close to, you know, his other family members. And and I have to say, you know, having been a geriatrician for a long time, I thought, you know, I don't think, you know, this gentleman is going to do very well. I think his prognosis is very poor. Well, you know, he fortunately had one of my interns who was taking care of him and they, you know, formed a very close friendship. And somehow this intern figured out that he could set up an iPad for our gentleman to communicate with his family by Zoom. And I think that was really a godsend because over time, and he was with us for probably about two weeks or so, one by one, those tubes came out, he could eat. So he didn't have to have the nasogastric tube. Um, you know, he could go to the bathroom by himself. Once those tubing started going away, he became a little bit more alert, less delirious. He became more uh, cognizant of his surroundings, more interactive with nursing staff and definitely with the team who came in to take care of him. And that was largely really attributed to the fact that he was able to start seeing his family members communicate with them. And certainly we did give him a pocket talker as well. And that's what we always use when we talk to him. From my point of view, you know, I kind of said, you know, he's got poor prognosis based on what I had known from so many years of practice. But here was this intern, you know, who just really loved and cared for my patient and uh, figured out a way to really connect him to the outside world that was his family. I really believe that made all the difference in the world. It gave him hope. It gave him courage and the will to live so he can go home and be reunited with his family members. And so I would say, gosh, you know, there's tangible things like antibiotics and IV fluids, but there are a lot of things that we don't think about that is so important in taking care of our patients. And our mind and soul play, you know, I think play a big part in, you know, how we fare. That was just one story that I can share with everybody about my seeing, you know, I think the importance of all that that you all do firsthand during the COVID pandemic. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate uh, you taking the time for this conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Want to hear more from today's guests? Look for them at the 2021 ASHA Convention in Washington, D.C., where they will be presenting in person as a part of the Research Symposium on Hearing. Planning to attend convention virtually this year? Look for their presentations online in the weeks following the convention. Learn more about this year's convention at convention.asha.org. One note about the Research Symposium on Hearing, the guests who you just heard on this podcast were selected by audiologist Nick Reed, the 2021 ASHA Convention Topic Chair for Hearing, Tinnitus, and Vestibular Science. You can hear Nick talk about public health and audiology in the podcast archive, including in our most recent episode. Nick and two other audiologists joined me for a conversation about over-the-counter hearing aids and what they might mean for the future of audiology. Look for that at the top of your podcast feed. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's National Outcomes Measurement System for Audiology. Harness the power of data to take your practice to the next level. Better data, better care. Find out what NOMS can do for you at asha.org NOMS. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.